So we're going to end a short series today and springboard into a new series. We have been sort of asking the tongue-in-cheek question, is it the end of the world as we know it? Um, and the answer is, well, no, not quite. And we're, we're going to spend the summer really digging into, taking a deep dive into what the Bible says is the end of the world as we try to understand the whole story of God. Um, sometimes we have a very limited sort of version of of. God and us, and it's it's about us now with very little regard to all the, th the things that have happened for thousands of years. Uh, and it, it's more about living life now, and we hardly think even about what happens after this. So we're going to have a, a series um, through the summertime that I believe will open our eyes to the big story, to, to the whole story. If you've ever wondered when someone asks you, well, what is Christianity or how, why is Christianity good or true or right for you? And, and you felt like you needed a way to describe the whole, sort of understanding the whole uh, panoply of Christianity. Um, I hope that we can go to that. And as we are moving into the, the summer months, we're going to have this series that is is basically called um, a longing. We're going to let the word longing be an operative word. Uh, I hope that it will sort of stir things up in us because longing is not uh, an intellectual notion. It's not uh, a concept. As much as it is a feeling, something deep, something um, that stretches back and stretches forward, and so if, if you're going to be coming along with us on this journey, uh, I encourage you to, to allow God by his Holy Spirit to prompt longings. We're going to see that the longings that are in our heart, uh, human longings, the longings that are in our art, in our literature, in, in our uh, drama, in the, the various human things of life, they're all pointing forward towards the same thing. And we will look at the Bible and how that the Bible is similarly always looking forward to the same thing, longing for, a longing forward as, as we move together, um, uh, journeying through this Christian life. So today, uh, I'd like to bring you to just a little bit of some introductory teaching, so I'm going to to um, kind of touch on some things that we will take a deeper dive into as the months go by, but, but this will also serve as a way to introduce what we are thinking about as, as we move forward. So here is um, uh, three sets of three that I'd like to talk about this morning, not for any more important reason than it kind of helps me to just keep control of the things I'd like to talk about. The first set of threes that I'd like to identify, we might call three worldviews. This is going to be somewhat academic, but it, it's very important 
because of the things that are, are drawn out for us in Second Peter. So b- before we look at these worldviews, uh, we've asked the question, is it the end of the world as we know it? And we will let Peter kind of have the last word as we listen together to the things that he told us, and then I will begin with my first set of three. Peter says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the world of that time was destroyed and deluged. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and new earth, the home of righteousness. Well, that is a passage packed with questions. Uh, We have asked the tongue-in-cheek question, is it the end of the world as we know it? And Peter says, no, not yet. But when it comes, and he describes it in cataclysmic terms, So we're going to try to draw back from that today and ask, um, what do we understand about this next transition? Having looked back to creation itself, which Peter says was was brought about by a word of the Lord, um, and looking past the flood, and we'll touch on that as we go by, we get all the way to the end, and Peter says there's, there's going to be another end to this created world by fire, And he tells us about the the events of those times. And we'll draw back from that and and sort of set our gaze as we prepare through the summer to look over the whole Bible and see what it is that we're looking forward to. Is the end of the world the fire that Peter talks about? Or is there something that we see through the fire, past the fire? And how, how do we prepare ourselves? In the meantime, the question sometimes floats around, does this matter? You know, when we talk about our faith, when we talk about the Bible, uh, people might just say, does it really matter? I mean, why does it matter? And in answer to that question, yes, it really, really, really matters. Peter says, because these things are going to happen, 
it matters that you live a certain kind of life. So that is his pastoral word to us. This really matters. All right, then back to the three worldviews, which are going to get us prepared to understand what Peter is saying and get to the hard question, which is, okay, what will the end of the world look like? There are three worldviews that have dominated um, in the modern era, and that is all the way from when we called time A.D., so for the last few thousand years. And the the terms here are simply labels uh, that would characterize the way generally people have thought about the relationship between God or gods or a god or no god and people um, in the background is the kind of the the question that persists which is does it matter whether there's a god or not um, if there is a god how does it matter if there's not a god how does that matter and and so on and we all have a particular worldview. We may not really even understand that, but we've been formed in, I would suggest, one of these three worldviews, one of these three big picture understandings of how God is related to his creation. The first of those we call deism. Um, deism is a, a very prevalent worldview that might simply be written up as uh, there, there is a God and he created everything. He started everything going. Um, he holds everything to account and will judge everything. He is the beginning and the end of all that has been created. And deism would say there most certainly is a God. When that becomes our worldview, it it often is translated into a kind of life that kind of vaguely refers to the fact that we know that there's someone out there, there's something out there, there's a God. We believe that somebody, something started all of this, created all of this, and we presume that at the end of the day, that being will hold us to account and perhaps even that that being will be held to account by us by by creation one model of deism is is the model of the watch so that uh, the watch is made by a watchmaker and he simply then begins he winds up the passage of time and then lets the watch play out the time that has been prepared. The God, the watchmaker, the creator, maybe steps back. He's still there. He is believed in. Um, There is an end purpose to what he has done. But in the meantime, he steps back. The second worldview is a little harder one to, to get our minds around. It's called Epicureanism, and it simply comes, I say it's a hard one just because the label is a hard one. Uh, It comes from a a teacher named Epicurus, and the worldview of Epicureanism uh, 
begins with the notion of a God, at least with the possibility of a God. Epicureanism says it really doesn't matter if there is or isn't a God. You can have one if you want. Um, you can imagine one if you want. You can contrive one if you want. Uh, you can also live without one if you want because in actual fact there is not a God uh, unless it's convenient to live according to your belief that there is. And maybe you, you sort of begin the ascent of the deism hill and say, no, I won't dismiss the idea of God. I don't know for sure, um, but I will keep the thought of God, the ideal of God in my mind. Uh, Epicureanism then looks into the world, into our lives, and asks the question, well, what, what does it matter that there is a God? And the, and the answer in Epicureanism is, it doesn't matter. You really can live whatever kind of life brings meaning to you because when all is said and done, there being or not being a God is of no consequence. Some philosophers today would suggest that the West is by and large an Epicurean society. Um, sometimes we toy with the notion of God, but we find no responsibility to, to live in light of that being's existence, unless it's useful to us, unless it somehow or other sorts through uh, the events of our lives. And so Epicureanism says there might be a God, but it really doesn't matter. Deism says there certainly is a God, but he may not be involved. Epicureanism says there may or may not be a God, and of course it doesn't matter if or not he's involved. And finally, we have theism, which is the worldview that uh, believes indeed, like the, the deists, that there is a God, but that that God is actually in and among his creation. So theists, we would call ourselves theists, I believe, although sometimes even as Christians, we become more like Epicureans or, or deists in the way that we live out our lives. But as theists, um, we believe in a God who created all that there is, um, and who is in and among his creation and will hold his creation to account at the end of time. So how and when does God intersect with humanness? Uh, the three schools of thought have three different responses to that question. And, and we, we find ourselves needing to stand firmly on the idea of theism. We believe in a personal God, a creator God, who is involved in his creation and who will hold his creation to account. And so then we're going to move into another uh, set of threes as we talk about how it is that that God will not only continue to be involved in his creation, um, but will hold it to account. That brings us to the question of judgment and gets us closer to what Peter has been saying when he says it'll be a big fire. And, and through the summer, we're, we're going to unpack those worldviews a little bit more finely uh, so that we can press ourselves to the mat and say, well, which of these are we, practically speaking, um, which of these ways describes how we live? 
we read in, in this chapter in Second in Peter that there's this notion of a thousand years. And Peter, he kind of picks on the thousand years arbitrarily, maybe. Um, but he says, do you not understand that in, in the Lord's calendar, um, a thousand years to him are like a day, or a day is like a thousand years. So w- when the scoffers who say, it doesn't matter how you live, be they deists or Epicureans, um, if there is a God, well, ever since the beginning, if he started things, he's never shown up, and we don't think he's going to. The Epicureans would say, well, it's all an academic exercise anyway, so why bother? And Peter says, don't be so quick. The Lord does not have the same passage of time in mind as you have. In fact, for him, a thousand years can pass by, and it was a day, or a day like a thousand years. And the Lord is not slow, and so be careful. He actually scolds the scoffers and says, you need to be careful about how you live because the Lord is going to return. He's going to enter creation in in a visible, definite way um, that should be taken into account as you live out your lives. And so Peter, for us, introduces the idea of a thousand. And as we get into the summer, we're going to look at three models of the way time and the future intersect or, or, or mingle by looking at the idea of a thousand. And today I'll simply bounce these three ideas out there and we'll we'll have lots of time to talk about them more finely. And among those who are followers of the Christian faith, um, they would all pretty much find themselves in one of these three camps so we've talked about three worldviews. Here are three camps that have to do with the thousands of Christianity. So the Bible also talks about the idea of a thousand years, a millennium. Peter makes this little reference to it, probably without even thinking of the millennial reign of Christ, as we will consider that. And we poke at the the whole story of the Bible to look for this idea of a millennium. The idea generally of a millennium is a period of time during which there is the, the present reign of God as our king or Christ as our king. In one school of millennialism, uh, we have those who are called pre-millennials. Uh, their view about the coming of God back into time, the coming of Christ to earth, is that that happens before a millennium. That there is, and in that school of thought, there literally is a thousand year period of time in which peace and justice uh, are returned by law into the experience of humankind. In premillennialism, the coming of Christ is to bring about that thousand-year peaceful reign. The next view of millennialism is amillennialism, and as you can imagine, the prefix means something, so premillennial means that the coming of Christ is pre 
millennium, before the millennium. All millennialism simply means that there is no millennium. So those who are all millennialists would say there's no literal thousand years. It is a figurative notion of the Bible. Um, and in the understanding of, of Christ followers who are all millennials, they would say the way that the millennium comes about is not in a period of time, but it actually comes through the church, through the presence of God's people. And the millennium, not something we look forward to, but something we usher in, that we become part of. The third view of the millennium um, is called post-millennialism. And as you can imagine, then it means that we expect the coming of Christ to be after the millennium, that there will be something called a millennium. It may be literal or figurative in this uh, school of thought, but the coming of Christ will be brought about by um, the millennium, by the, the, the peaceful presence of God's people, the peaceful presence of the church, uh, and then that ushers in the coming of Christ. So three views on the millennium will bring us to the question of what the Bible tells us uh, concerning this thousand-year reign of Christ. Will it literally happen, or is it something that is more figurative, more of a model than something um, that is actual? So I won't show you my cards just now, um, but I soon this summer will uh, plant my feet firmly in one of those three um, with a... Uh, kind of a polite acknowledgement um, of those who, who are my friends, my colleagues, my sisters and brothers in the other two camps. Well, now let's go to you know, what we really want to know today, which is what is Paul or Peter talking about when he uh, talks about the fire that's coming? There are three words uh, that Peter identifies, not just linguistic words but words in the sense of being spoken by God and very much a part of our cosmology our theology of the world is that it was spoken into being so the the story of Genesis begins with and God said and then John chapter 1 which is the New Testament echo of creation in Genesis 1 um John 1 says, the word, he was the word. All, all things came, and the word logos means that which is spoken, the spoken word. So there's this notion that everything that came to be came to be because it was spoken into existence. So that God brought into reality those thoughts that were in his head, those creative ideas of his mind, those intentions of, of, his, of his being, and they became true, they became real. The first word that uh, Peter identifies for us is the word of creation. And he alludes to the waters of creation. When we get into our study in, in the summertime, one of the look backs that we will take, or looks back that we will take, will be to creation. Because even from creation, there is the longing, 
the forward longing. Everything that happened at creation was towards an end, towards the future. And in, in the way that creation is described, we find that there are these waters, uh, the waters above and the waters below, and what God did to bring about creation in a watery kind of a milieu. We'll, we'll ex explore that a little bit and try to figure out what it means. Um, the second word that Peter identifies is the word that was spoken by God that caused the flood. So water involved at creation and then water in the flood in that God is disturbed by the, the unrighteousness of humankind and he decides to destroy the world. It's a very sober kind of a, a, a consideration that God is seen uh, kind of caricatured or anthropomorphized to be saying, I'm sorry I even made humankind. I'm, I'm going to destroy them. There's the little saga of Noah and his family and how that God finds him to be a righteous person and decides that he will spare Noah and then he tells Noah about this monstrosity that he's to build that we came to know as an ark. And Noah and his family are saved from the judgment by water um, in the flood by the ark. A little aside here is that it's very interesting to me that the animals are kept safe in the ark. We'll come back to that today maybe, but certainly in the summertime. When everything is destroyed, what will God do with the animals? What will God do with the innocent creatures uh, who are not culpable, right? They're not to be held guilty for the the brokenness and the sinfulness of our world. Well, for the, for the time of the flood, God protected them along with Noah, kept them safe in the ark, all of the animals, two by two, as we remember the, the, the Sunday school stories. But now Peter comes to the third word, which is the word of fire, that God spoke a word about creation. He spoke a word about the flood, and God will speak a word about fire. And Peter, in a, in a frankly frightening way, says that God will not destroy the world by water again, but he will destroy it by fire. In fact, he's reserving creation, reserving the earth for the fire of his judgment. How? will that take place? Let me just give you the verses that make that clear. And oftentimes in the Bible, we're wondering, is this a literal meaning or a figurative meaning? And it, it's always a fair question. And it's never a simple way out, depending on even on which way you'd like to see it bent. The Bible does use figurative language. It uses metaphor, it uses story, it uses symbol. So we're always asking, is this a literal term or a figurative term? 
And, and so we might be wondering, is this use of the word fire um, a figurative term? Is, because we know that fire is a purifier, we know that it's something that is used as of the image of bringing things through a purifying process. So could it mean that or what? And so we wonder, and we look therefore at the text from Peter, uh, because even when he talks about the idea of a thousand years or like a day and a day like a thousand years, th- does he really mean a literal thousand years or is, is it a little image there for him? Probably an image just there. But now about the fire. Second Peter 3 verse 7 says, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Does he mean real fire or... Is it an image of some kind? Well, let's keep looking. In verse 10, he says, The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. It's beginning not to sound very much like a figure of speech or a metaphor. It's, it's beginning to sound like a literal action, a literal event, as certainly as creation was a word that brought about real things, and the flood was a word that brought about actual judgment by water, Peter seems to be saying that there is coming a day when there will be a fire, there will be fire, not in a figurative sense, but literally fire, and that the heavens and the earth. I, I think we can figure out what earth means in the vocabulary of the Bible. We sometimes are left wondering about heavens. Um, most often the heavens is talking about this kind of canopy that is seen by the ancient mind as surrounding the earth. And it, it is to some degree the abode of, of God. And then beyond that is the entire universe, which which seems to be unexplained to us largely in the story of, of the Bible. So the heavens may, may be meaning that canopy around the earth, the, the earth, um, the starry skies, um, the, the clouds, the atmosphere above us. Peter says they will pass away, and then the language again is, is very dynamic and very real. He said they will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Verse 12, the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements with intense heat. What is that going to be? And is it the answer to the question, is it the end of the world as we know it? Is that the end of the world as we know it? I, I, I want to bring you to just one word in the middle of all of this that, that begins to open a, a door of incredible hope. Because this word seems like a word of judgment. It, it seems like a word of, of finality. It seems like a word of... Um, termination that says we're done. The earth, the heavens will be consumed 
they will be burnt by fire. And we would presume that to mean that that's it. It's gone. We're all over. Here's why a question like what happens to us comes into play. And uh, traditionally we have thought, well, we go to heaven. So if, if that's going to happen to the earth, isn't it a good thing that we're going to be going to heaven? Because we can escape that. Maybe. Um, the word I want you to see is at the end of verse 10. So uh, repeating again that the language it seems to be very literal concerning the end of the world. The heavens will pass away with a roar, a lot of noise, and the elements, the parts of creation, will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. The term that I want you to see is the word that is translated here in the NASB, burned up. Think of a fire burning. Think of a fire and the result of its burning. My family lives in the Okanagan Valley of British Columbia, and every summer they watch with horror as mountainsides are burned up. Fire uh, leaps, and those that are skilled firefighters try to find ways to to have the fire not leap to the next uh, tinder that's in front of it. So they will dig trenches, they will um, send huge airplanes with bellyfuls of water to pour it on the fire. And fire is, is a consuming element. It's a terrifying element. And it sounds in this passage that Peter is saying that that's the end of us, that's the end of our creation, fire. And if water wasn't bad enough, and God said, I'll never destroy the world or the earth by water again, now for it to be destroyed by fire seems even more severe. So what will happen? Again, the earth and its works will be burned up. What does it mean, burned up? Here's something that I, I want to state a claim or stake a claim about. The word that is used here is a word that means destroyed, yes, but here are some other lexical synonyms for burned up or destroyed. Bound up is one. Reserved is another. Laid bare is how the New International Version uh, uses it. And here's the one that fascinates me. The word discovered. It would say this, and the earth and its works will be discovered. What do I mean? What will happen in the judgment at the end of time? Well, at the end of time, and we will have to figure out, is that related to a pre-tribulational, premillennial coming of Christ, an all-millennial post. 
we'll figure that out. But what will happen, however time ends, or time moves into what is beyond it, will be a cataclysmic event by fire that we would view as having destroyed um, or perhaps laid bare, perhaps discovered. When, when Peter uses this term and, and one of its nuances is the word reserved, um, Peter in, in verse seven has said that the, the earth is reserved for the fire. And now we come full circle to that and say, well, what was going to happen to the earth for which it was reserved? Is it reserved to be destroyed? Is it reserved to be annihilated? Is that what the Bible talks about when it claims that there will be a new heaven and a new earth because the first earth has passed away? Does it just happen like that? Does the, does the earth and the heavens, do they just simply incinerate and become nothing? Is that what was to become of God's good creation, we might ask? That in the final day, he would simply burn it up and say, no more. We'll, ha- we'll have to start over. I don't think that is what that means. And, and I will take pains over the next few months to, to show you how that what God is planning to do is not annihilation of creation, but it is purifying of creation. When, when Peter uses this term and, and we choose the term discovered for its translation, which is almost the primary way that that word would have been translated or would have been understood if we had gone to classical Greek or Koine Greek and, and the early writers of the Christian era. What does it mean that the earth and its works, its works would be the, the mechanics of the whole thing. So let's just talk about the earth. The earth will be discovered. It, it's a word that was used literally for discovering when, when something was found that hadn't been found before. In what sense could the judgment by fire be characterized as a discovering? Here's what, what I'm coming to, to, to appreciate as, as the meaning of this purification. When those fires burn in British Columbia, uh, and afterwards, um, surveyors and geologists and whoever all of the disciplines are, when they, when they tromp through the charred results, burned wood and, and all the rest, they soon on the forest floor begin to discern a new growth. They begin to discern something beginning to emerge from the floor of the forest. What I believe happens in the, the judgment by fire is that God reduces the earth to its elemental condition in which he can begin to grow 
a new creation in place of the old. He will begin to grow a new forest. Why did it need to be burned? Somehow or other, for God to deal with the corruption of the earth. Because remember Romans, Paul says that that the earth itself, creation, is longing to be set free from its corruption, from its futility to which it has been subject. God, by this final judgment, will, will bring about a purification that will actually burn out the corruption. What God has done through Christ has burned out the corruption of sin in human existence. Now God will finish the job and he will burn out the corruption that is in creation so that what he intended, the beauty and the glory of creation, he can now renew and restore and it will come again into life, into fruition, into purposefulness. I love the idea that the the new creation of the new heaven and new earth is not something that didn't ever exist anywhere before, but that it is it is the old creation rid of its corruption, purified, made perfect. And I get the sense of God now having a, a new garden to plant. This garden will have no weeds. Uh, that God will plant an, a new home for humanity and sin will not be in the planning by humanity of what is grown in this garden. Will it be an agrarian new earth or will it be an urban new earth or will it be both? One of the things that, that torments me right now and you, you can go ahead and try to figure this out is that we are told in the book of Revelation that there'll be no more sea. And I object to that. I hope there will be sea. I'm sure there must be some reason that that's in there. Maybe you can find that out before we get to it. I hope there's there's a sea. I love fishing. I love the being by the sea. But, but at any rate, the point is that, that God is not done with the old creation. He will discover the new creation. He, he certainly will lay bare this creation, this, this earth as we know it. But in order to bring about this new home for this new humankind, he just had to get everything out of the way that was no longer necessary or was judged to be part of that old creation that was fallen. I like that idea more than the idea that it is consumed to nothing. It seems more right to me, and I'm veering into what I claimed last week we should be willing to check one another on, which is I'm, I'm saying I think, and I will acknowledge that, that I'm saying I think that this must be what it means. But on good grounds, the, the good grounds of what this word means, that there's a reserving of this current creation for judgment, and there's a purpose of that creation, and it is so that 
God might start into the future uh, to lead us forward into the new heavens and new earth. Again, as I said, God kept the animals safe. I wonder what happens in the fire of this judgment related to, to the animals. Um, you see, if, if the creation dis, disappears, if it's consumed, if it's eradicated, um, then he might have to start all over again in creating animals, not just taking two at a time so that they can, can mate and, and have offspring. But maybe in this idea, we have that God can somehow keep the animals. He, he maybe moves the animals into some safe kind of a zone. Now I'm just beginning to speculate, so you can turn, turn it off now and, and we'll carry on. But I don't know what it is, but that what we're longing for is fulfilled. You see, there's, there's this notion that we're longing forward for something. It seems wrong to me that we're longing for something that can only come by the eradication of everything that there is, by the destruction of everything. If everything is aiming towards a new creation, and somehow or other how we live in this creation pays forward into that new creation, then there's a reason for our lives instead of just waiting to leave here and go somewhere better. Peter says you scoffers should pay attention. God is patient and he will let time pass to allow as many as can to understand his gospel, his great message before he brings about the the judgment that he has reserved for this current creation. So you should be careful how you live. Deists, Epicureans, theists. Deists might say, well, God started all this, but he's gone. He won't be back till the end. If so, when he comes back, he will come back to hold us to account. Epicureans who say, well, there really may not even be a God. Well, if there is a God and he created this and he created us and he returns, he most certainly will want to know what we have done with the world in which he placed us. For theists, we need to be alert to how it is that this God who created the universe is in and among his creation and working and working towards the thing that we long forward for, uh, which is the, the paradise of a new heaven and a new earth, with the hard work in the meantime of ridding this creation of the corruption of sin. Long, I long for. Have you had some things in your life that you couldn't wait for? Couldn't wait for your birthday. Couldn't wait for school to end different this year. Couldn't wait for your wedding day. Couldn't wait for your child to be born. Couldn't wait for this pandemic to be over. The sense of the teaching of the Bible, all of it, is that we can't wait for what is ahead. 
we can't wait for the new heaven and new earth because they will be the, the fulfillment of the deepest longings. The deepest longings of the story of the Bible, the history of the Bible, the deepest longings of our lives that show up here, there, and everywhere. The deep longing of God himself and the deep longing of his spirit to work in and through creation and his new creation. I've recommended a, a book to you by John Eldritch, and I've given you the link in the, the letter that I wrote this Wednesday. I, I encourage you to, to uh, if you have a chance, to, to find that book or buy that book. It's a great summer read, well worth that. It's an easy read and a lovely read that it talks about the the longing forward that is true to the things we have had a taste for, a taste of. I think that's the dynamic of the teaching about the end of the world. It's not the end of the world in, in that idiomatic sort of a way where we say, oh my, it's the end of the world. No, it, it's the end of the world as a doorway into the hope, the great hope, the great longing that God has placed in our hearts for him and for a new creation that will be more colorful, more vivid, deeper, wider, will taste stronger, will be everything that is good that is now blown up into a, a bigger sense of itself. Join us as we embark on this particular study next weekend.